Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from New Orleans and uh, taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-88-PETER. And if you can't get there on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. We'll do that throughout the show. Joining me here, a very special guest, especially what a perfect time to do this on Independence Day weekend. Uh, the Secretary of the Interior, Sally Jewell. Thank you so much, Madam Secretary. Peter, it's great to be with you. Thank you. You know, we've had a chance to do a number of things on the national parks on CBS. I, I did one recently that blew me away. I thought I knew a lot about national parks. And, and what I realized very quickly is how much I didn't know. You know, people know Yosemite. They know Yellowstone. They might know Acadia. They might. They know Great Smoky Mountains, I'm sure. We did one that was an amazing, we got so much response on it, Cuyahoga. Right. I mean, the place was a dump. It was literally a dump, and they turned it around. It was a great community effort as one of your urban parks. No, that's right. Cuyahoga is a perfect example of 
bringing parks into people's everyday lives. There was a young woman that I met who's uh, working for the Park Service that went to Girl Scout camps in Cuyahoga and didn't even realize she was in a national park, and it was reclaimed from a river that was on fire back in the 1960s. Otherwise known as the Cuyahoga River, for those people who remember the Randy Newman song, it's still being sung, although the river is no longer catching fire. Yeah, the river is beautiful. I've been out there. It's a lovely place to visit. Yeah, and what people don't realize is if you're leaving in Cleveland or Akron, it's right between the two cities. It's drivable. And next thing you know, you have 300 bird species, you're walking, you're biking, it's great. That's right. When I was there, I saw a beautiful owl that was soaring overhead and hanging out in a tree. Uh, there's trails throughout there. And, and this is uh, Cuyahoga Valley National Park is not unique. We have urban national parks close to many of our big cities that are kind of undiscovered. When you became Secretary of the Interior, what was the biggest surprise for you about learning about the assets of America? I think probably the biggest surprise was that so many people didn't realize what we have as their public lands and waters. And I guess it was also a big surprise at how difficult it was to get support from, for them from our friends in Congress. Because they hadn't gotten out of the door to see them. I think a lot of them didn't realize they were there and, you know, constantly criticized for how can you add more public lands when you can't take a f care of what you have, and yet a place like Cuyahoga Valley National Park is so important to Cleveland and the state of Ohio. Yeah, and, and it's a great resource, too. I mean, what, here's what's amazing to me. We're in a situation where only about 37% of the American public even has a passport. I mean, that's pretty scary. That right? is scary. Want to hear something scarier? What? How many members of the United States Congress and Senate have passports? Not 100%, huh? You got that one right. <laughs> and I, I think we should take up a collection. They only cost about 110 bucks, right? We should take up a collection. Not, it's just bipartisan. Get each of these guys and women a passport and then tell them to get the hell out of the country for a while. Just to understand how can you make policy when you don't even leave your own home state. Well, I will say that as I've traveled the world yeah. over the course of my life, I've learned so much more about culture, about history, about natural areas. And uh, it also helps me appreciate the yeah. crown jewels that we have here in yeah. this country, which, of course, aren't crown jewels in the sense that they are in Great Britain, which is where I was born. Oh, sure. Uh, they are uh, our natural areas and our rich culture and our rich history. Well, what, what's amazing to me is how many times I travel around the world and they know more about our country than we do. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, they really do. And our politics. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> okay. But the point is they are well-informed and they study us. And so they really want to come and visit. Now, of course, I'll tell you a funny story. We were doing a piece a couple of years ago on the state of Delaware. And... What I, did, what I discovered when I was there is at that time, they didn't have a national park. It was the last state to get a national right. park. Right. So we shot all their state parks as like hidden gems, right? I now go on CBS to talk about national parks. I'm saving a surprise for you. There's a state that doesn't have a national park. And in fact, they've got 17 state parks, which are pretty cool. We showed those parks. They got a national park. They did. That's right. So you're taking credit. I'm taking part. Okay. I'll take part that's in good. Credit. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. The vice president maybe can get a little. Well, credit you know, a little too. Delaware action with him. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Of course. Well, he takes credit for Amtrak too, because he used to take that train every day. He you know? was a diehard supporter and still is. Exactly. I, I, I wish there'd be more. How do you work with all your travel partners uh, to make sure that people actually see more than just Yosemite and Yellowstone? Because I know I'm going to get my numbers wrong, but the last time I looked, there was something like 394-something parks and monuments. There's 411. See, I told you I got it wrong. Units. Well, we keep uh, adding, or Congress keeps yeah. adding. We had 307 million visitors last year. That was a record, up 4% 4, 4 from 2014. This year, we are on a track to break that record by a pretty wide margin. So they're very popular. And, and yes, the world knows about Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, a Statue of Liberty, 
And Nobody, not everyone knows it's a, it's a national park. That's though. true. That's true. And how many New Yorkers have never been there? A lot. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. But there's also, uh, you know, hidden gems throughout our park service, our forest service, you know, public lands and waters managed by the Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps of Engineers and NOAA that people aren't, uh, don't have on their radar. And that's important for them to know well, about. You know, it probably gets down to a definition of terms because when you, you think of a national park, you're not necessarily thinking of a marine reserve. That's right. right. Exactly. I mean, look, I live in, in a national seashore. I'm on Fire Island. Oh, okay. And there's a great story about that. When I was growing up, Robert Moses, the great developer of New York, who basically wanted to pave New York, wanted to pave Fire Island. He wanted to build a highway across Fire Island. So we all were crazed about this, and it was bipartisan. Jacob Javits actually had a house on Fire Island, the senator. Mm -hmm. John Lindsay was then our uh, representative in Congress before he became mayor. Every, but LBJ was president. And everybody marched on Washington, and guess what? They got them to sign an act making Fire Island a National Seashore to stop the development, and thank God they did. Well, thank God not only for the public lands aspect, yeah. but it also is a natural barrier that uh, benefited communities when oh, don't we know Superstorm it? Sandy came through. Absolutely. If, if Fire Island hadn't been there, the damage would have been so much worse. Now, you yeah. talked about partners, though. Yeah. AARP and AAA have been putting out information on the lesser-known national parks around Which, the yeah. country, lesser-known places that yeah. people can visit. So we don't overrun all the same places, because I will say there are hidden gems all over this country. Now, how many have you been to? How many parks? Yeah. I haven't added them up. <laughs> lots, lots and lots. I did a road trip back in 1977 and put 15,000 miles on my car, and it was all visiting national parks around the country. I'm going to do a, a replay of that when I'm done with this job. And nicely to, nice to speak that the, the fuel prices now are about what they were in 77, maybe even less. <laughs> maybe if you don't count inflation. Exactly. But yeah, people talk about the, uh, you know, the price of the dollar relative to foreign currencies. But if you come and visit America's public lands and waters, it's a very inexpensive vacation relative to some of the other things that one might do. And we hope that tourists from the United States as well as uh, foreign countries uh, recognize what a bargain our public lands are across the country. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. speaking to the Interior Secretary of the United States, Sally Jewell, Madam Secretary. We talk about all the, the hidden national parks. They may not be really hidden, but they are not well known. Correct. And yet they're everywhere. Whenever I go someplace, whether it's, uh, you know, just for a weekend day, I will actually go out to recreation.gov and look at what's there. From Washington, D.C., which is not where I've grown up or where I've lived before, my husband and I will look for battlefields, look for historic properties, we'll walk around the neighborhoods, we'll find tremendous hidden gems just in and around the Washington, D greater Washington, D.C. area. That's true all over the country if people just look. And, you know, you heard me mention about volunteer vacations. I don't think there's a single national park that doesn't offer volunteer opportunities. No, that's true. In fact, that's becoming more and more popular. We've welcomed volunteers. We have probably 10 volunteers for the National Park Service alone to every one employee. And they will come out and they'll be campground hosts and they'll work in our visitor centers. They'll do trail maintenance. Most importantly, we're getting 
getting young people out into the outdoors through Youth Conservation Corps crews, really rebuilding what we had in the 30s after the Great Depression with the CCC. So the 21st Century Conservation Service Corps is a group of Youth Conservation Corps crews all over the country. They're volunteering their time or they're working as, you know, for a paid summer job, leading volunteer crews in doing very, very important work for their public lands. And the people that I met, by the way, in Cuyahoga started as volunteers and now they're working for you. Uh, yeah, that's right. Because when the, when the job came open, nobody knew it better than they did. Exactly. You know, so there's a way to do that. There's a transition possibility. Yeah, exactly. What's been the biggest surprise hidden park for you? The one that you went, this is the wow. Gosh, over the course of my life or over the course of this job? Over the course of this job. Without alienating all the other parks. You know, I, I always say I love all my children equally. Uh, I know. Now let's, I, let's get to the real part. Well, I will say that my husband and I took a long weekend and we went down to... Stopped at Everglades. We stopped at Big Cypress and um, uh, Biscayne National Park, but Dry Tortugas National Park, which you take a boat and it's 75 miles west of Key West. So it's a long boat trip. It's a it's a long boat trip. It's open to the public. We took our camping gear. We camped on the beach. We we paid the same rate as everybody else does. You uh, registered we, online in we, advance. Yeah, we, we did. <laughs> and uh, it is a it's a fort. It was a prison that housed the Lincoln uh, assassination conspirators, including Dr. Mudd. You hear Harvey my name is Mudd. Harvey Mudd. Yes. There's it's, a name I just pulled out of something. Yes. There you go. It's also uh, home to an incredible diversity of bird species, turtles. So we were there touring the historic fort. Because of my job, I had an opportunity with my husband to go out uh, with a wildlife biologist, count some turtle nests as on some of the uninhabited islands that are critical habitat. There are volunteers that not only at that park, but also that work as keepers at a lighthouse it's not a, a functioning lighthouse for the Coast Guard, but it is a historic site that you can kayak across from dry tortugas, and people do, or they take their own boats. But they kept the lighthouse that, going. The lighthouse still worked. I bet it does. Uh, I, it doesn't work with the same mechanism. Of course. There may be yeah. a light there. But, well, it's like our Fire Island lighthouse. It's preserved by volunteers. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, a couple was just getting installed, and they were going to be there for a month, and that's the kind of volunteerism we have. But that is a hidden gem. It's way out there, and it is a spectacular place to have a vacation. Now, there are other great alternatives to hotels that also fall under your category, right? The watchtowers? Yes. People don't know about the watchtowers. Yeah. People can actually camp up there. There's a lot of places that people can camp as long as they get a reservation, do it appropriately. Right. Uh, yeah, I have my And that's totally BYO. That's BYO. Yeah, it's BY water as well. It's <laughs> BY everything. <laughs> exactly. You know, you mentioned the fact that you went out with a marine biologist, but a number of your parks, if you know advance, you can actually talk to them and they will give you the tour. That's correct. Most places have ranger chats. They have tours. Uh, you can sign up when they get when you get there. And actually, for my entire life, including the life of my children, if we went and stayed in a national park, we'd say, "Are they doing a lecture tonight? You know, what's it on?" We'd take the family. We'd go. It might be on night skies, or it might be on listening to the quiet. It might be on bird life. Anything. And pretty much all of our national parks and many other public lands will have that kind of uh, engagement for the public. By the way, speaking of night skies, what better place to view the night sky? when you don't have city lights interfering than a national park. Exactly. Theodore Roosevelt National Park, incredible for night skies. Uh, great sand dunes in Colorado. You can actually go online and look at our night sky parks. And you see got a sky cam? <laughs> don't know. We have a lot of eagle cams. I know that. I'm not sure about a sky cam, but... Really? We may, yeah. Where are the eagle cams? Well, we actually... Uh, 
have them around Washington, D.C., osprey cams and so on. They're a little bit controversial because, you know, wildlife is wild and sometimes people you know, don't like to see what happens in, uh, you know, nests with little chicks, but that is wildlife. And, oh, uh, count me in. I want to see what's going <laughs> well, on. Go out there and look at wildlife cams. I bet you'll yeah. see a lot. We, we post them on our website, on our Instagram site, so people can go out and have a look. What's your Instagram site? Which one is it? At U.S. Interior? You don't have to whisper. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> At U.S. Interior. At U.S. Interior. Yes. Got it. Now the big bad word, budget. Yes. I mean, how do you maintain all of these and give them the care and, 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 and feeding, if you will, that they need yeah. when you have a Congress that doesn't always understand what you do? Well, it has been frustrating. Uh, and I think Congress really understood how important they were to the American people when they shut the government down. And the national parks were every day. That was a big wake up call. Right. It was a big wake up call. And the fact is, our nation loves its parks. Our local communities, economies are tied into the public lands nearby. And I think that was a wake up call. And that's why I negotiated with a number of governors to have the states pay to keep parks open during that time. And they did. Seven of them did. Wow. And uh, it's because it's it's critical to their economies. They got more in sales tax revenue than what they spent in keeping the parks open. So we are making the case that parks and public lands are economic drivers to states and local communities. And it is important that Congress support them. We do have uh, pending legislation over and above our budget specifically to uh, address the maintenance backlog in our national parks so that over a 10-year period of time, if this bill is passed, uh, we would be able to repair the most critical uh, deferred maintenance projects across the national park system, half of which are roads. You say roads. Where the, 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 the target areas of the roads right now? No, the roads actually typically are funded out of uh, highway money. Right. So there is some money to do that, but not uh, sufficient. All of the other things uh, that we need to do, whether it's trails or buildings, historic properties, cultural properties, all fall under our regular budget, and we've asked for a supplementary budget to address the deferred maintenance. You know, one of the biggest challenges that I've seen over the last 20 years, but specifically over the last 10, is trying to get legislators at the state, local, or federal level to connect the dots to understand the economic significance of travel and tourism. Yes, you know, the, the outdoor industry estimates that... Uh, Active outdoor recreation is a $646 billion industry that employs 6.1 million people. That's bigger than pharmaceuticals and all household utilities combined. It's almost the size of pharmaceuticals plus motor vehicles plus motor vehicle parts. It's that big. And yet it doesn't get that kind of attention because it's, you know, it's very wide and, and not very deep, meaning it's not as effective as a lobby as, say, some of the wealthier and, and smaller and more focused industries. So we're trying to make a case with our colleagues on Capitol Hill, and so is the industry, and so are organizations like the you know, International Travel and Tourism Associations, that this is a critical part of the economy that warrants our support. You know, all you have to do is look at certain countries overseas that have such a great dependence on travel and tourism, and when that dries up, the country basically folds up the tent. I mean, tourism into Egypt right now has flatlined, and that's what provides jobs, it puts food on the table, and, you know, they know, right? But so many people look at travel and tourism, oh, it's just fun, so it's not important. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you know, in my former day job, which was working at REI, we did adventure travel trips in the United States and around the oh, world. Oh, so you came properly equipped to this I job. I came properly equipped. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I say it's never about the weather. It's just how well equipped you are to handle it. But uh, You can apply that to anything. <laughs> you can. 
If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest is an old friend of mine who I uh, had the pleasure of hanging out with in uh, Dubai and then right after that in Orlando. And uh, he has a specific reason for being in Orlando because he's the head of all Visit Orlando, George Agell. And George, as you painfully know, and as we painfully know, a tragic incident, not one, but three, if you will. I mean, it was, it was a, a perfect storm. The shooting of a, of, of a singer, the alligator incident at Disney, and of course the horrific nightclub shootings that killed 49 people, all within a span of, what, six or seven days. Uh, literally less than a week. Less than a week, yeah. yeah. It was only a month and a half ago that I visited you in Orlando where you announced, I mean, some unbelievably impressive figures of visitation to Orlando, making you the number one destination in the United States. With that kind of focus on Orlando, with people who still very much want to come, how do you react to the situation like that in a way that, that lets people know that they'll be safe, that they'll be welcome, that they don't have to worry? Because as you and I both know, I mean, I live it all the time. The worst four-letter word that starts with F when it comes to travel is fear. Well, and it was. It was um, a shock to all of us, of course, to have had this come together like it did. And as you pointed out, obviously three cases in such a short period of time. But it's certainly the, the loss of life that we experienced with the event, uh, followed by the incident with the young toddler, I think these were just overwhelming. And the first impact, of course, was immediately for the victims and their families and worries about uh, what happened there. And we, our focus was principally and completely on that. We want to make sure that we understood that that's first and foremost what we had to concentrate and I'll on tell you, in all I, of our communication. And I'll tell you a story. My producer was visiting family in Orlando when that happened, and she immediately went out to give blood. The line to give blood was so long, and it was it was heartwarming. It was a remarkable, when you think about it, it was a, normally a difficult thing to get enough people to come out yeah. sometimes, but there was such an incredible desire to help that the lines looked like you were standing at uh, Disney at Space Mountain looking to get in. It was just non, it was just as far as the eye could see. Standing out there in the heat, whatever it took, they were going to be doing it. So that kind of response has been consistently what we've been experiencing. It actually has been, we didn't know initially at the aftermath what to expect. And what we got was an overwhelming amount of support, outpouring of sympathy. All around the world. All around, all around the, the world. world. I can't even think of a sector, a segment, a region that hasn't come forward in some form or the other. And I think what that tells us is that first and foremost, there is a fundamentally, thankfully for us, and gratefully, the, a, an emotional connection that a lot of people feel for our, for our destination. I mean, the memories we're talking 45 years of having created memories for so many for so long. And I think they really genuinely felt that, uh, like us, they felt some pain over just seeing something happen to the happiest place on earth. And I think this really had an impact. And what we tried to do at this point is to uh, make them understand, among other things, how we were feeling as a community and how we were responding as a community. But then later on, to your earlier point, we really went immediately to remind them that a destination that, as you were pointing out, hosted more visitors than any other destination in the United States, is clearly highly recognizing the importance that safety is priority one, meaning that there's just nothing could be more important to us in the industry we're in and in the business we're in of hosting guests from all over the world 
nothing could be more important than safety. So we have had unbelievable infrastructure in place in the, as a community across all of our destination, across the attractions area, the tourist districts, and many other parts that others don't even realize for the longest time. Sure. And so what we did, uh, candidly, is we simply looked and said, you know, we know we do this, we believe, at an incredibly high level today, but let's go back and adjust and make sure that we're thinking about every other possibility and add and, and adjust what we're thinking is on it. And we've done that. And Without the, making it oppressive. And we no need to, because so yeah. many of the things we're doing that are not seen. Frankly, a lot of the changes we've made are discreet, and they should be. I think our point is that we still want everybody to feel welcomed uh, and not necessarily go around and believe that everything has to turn around and feel like there's some element that uh, creates a less than a welcoming environment. Sure. You know, you heard the line, you know, when, when something like this that's that bad happens, it can either define you, destroy you, or strengthen you. And I'd have to say, based on everything I've seen so far, it's done the latter. It's strengthened you. You know, it's in the fact that the uh, Tony Award, uh, Frank with the, Langella, with the next guy, yeah. Frank Langella, who won the Best Actor Award of Drama Play, uh, exactly said that in his welcome. He took his entire speech and threw it out and focused on his message on recognizing what happened in Orlando. And he used those exact definitions of it. And I think uh, we feel so far, based on this support we've gotten, that we feel like it's actually striking with us. It's you know, not we, defining us. That's the key. We saw what happened in, in Paris. We saw what happened in Istanbul a number of times. And in both of those cases, reservations drop off almost immediately. But they bounce back because it's still places that people really either want to go or, in your case in Orlando, they want to return. Right. Of course, the first thing we did was immediately monitor, among many things, just if there was any potential that there, we could see any trends in anyone changing their travel plans. We haven't seen any of it, literally. It's just remarkable. And I Maybe think we've come to a point in our life, sad to say, where we, we believe that this is like the cost of living. You know, it's, it's, it's become a way of life. It's like what people in Northern Ireland did after all the bombings there. It's sort of like, okay, there's another one, but we're going to still go out and live our lives. I think there's a bit of that. I think we have seen enough of this as a country that those recognize what we hear a lot is, you know, that could happen anywhere. It just happened to be, unfortunately, happened in Orlando. But it could happen in our town the same way. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel and playing the radio with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial i'm going to mispronounce this based on my next guest i'm going to tell you this right now new orleans where am i new orleans thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> taking your calls at 888-887-3837 that's 888-88-PETER if you can't get through on the phones you know the drill you email me to peter petergreenberg.com with your name phone number question or problem we will solve it right here on the air pleased and happy to, to uh, welcome to the show the lieutenant governor of the great state of louisiana billy nungesser how are you sir good morning well good morning to you sir yeah i mispronounced the state i mispronounce everything according to you well, it's just we got that lazy English down here in Louisiana where we uh, pronounce things a little differently. Down on the bayou, the Couchon Delay, it's a mixture of everything uh, from around the state. And depending on where you are in the state, they'll pronounce it differently. So up in north Louisiana, they speak a little different. Over in Lafayette, they got the Cajun Creole. And down in the bayou, 
It's a whole different language. And you adjust to all of it? Absolutely. That's how I got elected. <laughs> <laughs> you speak to everybody in their dialect. That's exactly right. Okay. Which one are you speaking to me on today? Well, today I'm speaking to lazy New Orleans English. <laughs> after a few uh, trips down Bourbon Street uh, last night. and uh, Hey, listen, after it, a few trips down Bourbon Street, I'll start speaking lazy New Orleans English. <laughs> <laughs> Bourbon yeah, Street really hasn't changed, has it? It really hasn't. I tell you, you know, uh, people come from all over the world and they come back 20 years later, and they say the same little jazz club, uh, some of the same musicians. Uh, they're a lot older, a lot grayer, but they still play their great New Orleans jazz. Now, you're not really based here. You're based in Baton Rouge, or I should say Baton Rouge. Yes, I was uh, president of Plaquemines Parish, which is that little finger that sticks out in the golf doing the BP oil spill and the hurricanes. And then I've got a place in Baton Rouge now that I'm lieutenant governor. Because that's where the legislature is. Absolutely. That's where the money comes from. Actually, you know what? That's where something else is. Frost Top. <laughs> You're right. The one left. And that is a great thing we talked about earlier. The Frost Top. As a kid, I'd eat there I'm every weekend. You, man, the root beer. It's the root beer. People don't realize this. If you go back to a movie with Dennis Quaid and John Goodman called Everybody's All-American, that's in the movie. Absolutely. And it's yeah. right there in Baton Rouge and uh, Tiger Stadium, that movie. And yeah. that was a great movie. So here's the deal. I go to Frost Top, get a couple of Zaps potato chips, go to an LSU game, run for my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great, great weekend, great day. Hey, let's talk about travel and tourism because this is a state that so much depends on it, especially this city. And that's part of your mandate, isn't it? Absolutely. Tourism is the number one job of the lieutenant governor here in Louisiana. But what's interesting about the way the politics are in this state, the governor is a Democrat. You're a Republican, right? Absolutely. And yet you have to work together. Yeah. And convince the legislature about the power and, and the importance of travel and tourism. Yeah, we hope to change things this year. For the last 10 years, uh, every lieutenant governor had their budget cut. Uh, the one person that can run against the governor in four years is the lieutenant governor. Uh, he does all the great things for Louisiana, promoting tourism. So the, minute, so the minute you got that job, he's looking over his shoulder. Yeah, but we went to lunch the week after the election. I shook his hand and gave him my word I would not be running against him, that we would work as a team for what's best for Louisiana. And God knows we need that more across America today. And teams working together for the greater good, not for their political, uh, their own political future. Hey, and listen, we're in an election year now, so anything's possible. <laughs> or, you're may right. or maybe not. <laughs> but no, we'll work together. We have a great state and special people. And uh, the only way I could do my job is make that commitment to him so he knows I'm on the team working for all the good. We won't agree on everything. But what we do agree is Louisiana is a great state. Are you agreeing on travel and tourism? We absolutely are. He's on board. He gets it. I mean, once you see the numbers, how could you disagree? Absolutely. And at a time when the oil industry is struggling, especially here in Louisiana, what greater way to fill those hotel rooms, the restaurants, and the shops, but fill them with tourists. And that's what we hope to do. Was your budget cut? It was cut a little bit, but not nearly <laughs> as much as everyone else. And we're going to do some private-public partnerships and do some things to create revenue that we've never done before. With all the state parks, uh, we've got beautiful state See, parks. See, now here we are, the 100th anniversary of America's national parks, but people tend to forget there are many states out there that their state parks can actually be better than the national parks. These state parks in Louisiana are a treasure that people haven't discovered yet. Toledo Bend has been picked the second year in a row, the number one bass fishing lake in the entire USA. Uh, people come from all over You're the world. You a fisherman? Yes, I'm a fisherman. I knew, I knew that was coming. And the saltwater fishing off the coast of Louisiana has been number one, two, or three in saltwater fishing every year See, in I'm the a, world. I'm a, I'm a saltwater fisherman. You want to know why? I don't believe in catch and release. If I'm going to work that hard for the fish, it's dinner. It's coming home. It's <laughs> coming home, yeah. You know, we've got a great new program in Louisiana where you can actually go out and fish 
and bring your fish to a restaurant if you're a tourist, and they'll cook your fish for you that night, and you eat it in the restaurant. See, now that's... Why haven't other people thought of that? Well, that, that was actually people were tired of bringing fish in and having to wave goodbye them at the dock uh, <laughs> and, and not be able to get them frozen before they could take them home. So they actually get to eat their fish cooked by a Louisiana chef uh, in the city or anywhere across the coast. So that's a great program. Wow, I love that. That's cool. And how many? And what's your limit? Well, you, my limit, my limit. You can catch a limit, come back in. But you know, the redfish and trout, and of course, offshore we have the best tuna fishing anywhere around the drilling rigs in the Gulf. They actually, the little fish uh, eat off of the barnacles on the on the rigs and the big fish. So everyone fishes around those rigs in the Gulf of Mexico and catch fish. They come from all over the world to fish the Gulf of Mexico off Louisiana. What's your biggest tourism challenge? The biggest challenge is trying to show where do we go to market Louisiana and how do we make people uh, see all the great things. We all know New Orleans, but, you know, we talked last night with a group from China about Poverty Point a World Heritage Site, over 3,400 years old, right here in Louisiana in the northeast corner. Uh, we've got to put a wow factor up there so when people go, they see the mounds, they get the history. Um, but to look at all those things, this great, incredible Mississippi River, uh, we're going to see Viking Cruise Line open a cruise now next year. On the Mississippi. On the Mississippi, from New Orleans, head north all the way up to Memphis. That will be a great opportunity for people from all over the world to come see the great mighty Mississippi River and all it has to offer. So the challenge is trying to sow the beautiful, we were at Homer's house last night, beautiful plantation home. Or if you go down to Avery Island, Tabasco sauce has been made there with the same recipe by the same family for 140 years. And it still will burn your mouth if you eat too much. I'll tell you, my first trip to New Orleans happened about 30 years ago. And I got here, they were just opening at the Sheridan. And I was staying at the Sheridan. And a friend of mine who was working on the jazz festival said, what are you doing later? I said, it's already 10 o'clock at night. What do you mean later? <laughs> she said, well, I'm going to like later. I said, I was planning on sleeping. She says, no, be downstairs in the lobby at 1 o'clock. I said, you're serious? She said, yeah. Said, okay, I go down the lobby at 1 o'clock. And I said, you know, I'm on a riverboat on the river with the Neville brothers, and we're out there all night long. I said, okay, now I get New Orleans. Absolutely. There's always a party, day or night. You know, the other morning I saw people walking around with Bloody Marys. This is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. All right, tell me the truth. How much vacation did you take last year? How much are you going to take this year? How much did you think you took last year? And perhaps most importantly, how many vacation days did you just leave on the table? Was it FOMO, fear of missing out? Or was it just stupidity? Or was it the economy? Or was it just a combination of things that allowed you to miss that time off? Joining me now from the U.S. Travel Association, Katie Dennis, who has the best title. And the title is? Senior Director of Project Time Off. There we go. Vacation. Now, the last time we, we addressed this subject with your boss, Roger Dow, mm -hmm. Americans had left something in the, on the vicinity of 420-odd million days that they can't get back. They just didn't take them. Right. So it's actually gotten a little bit worse. 
And I think the issue with that is we're up to 658 million days. But what's worse than that... That we just didn't take. That we just didn't take. The worst part of that, though, is about a third of those days are forfeited. So you can't roll them over. You can't bank them. You can't save them for anything in the future. Sounds like my frequent flyer program. It's right. <laughs> They've expired. They're yeah. not gonna. They're not going to come back into the fold. So I think those How much of this days. is people just get into a... Um, well, they're victims of their own, I guess, habits. That, that they're afraid of missing work. They can't turn it off. Uh, they, they're afraid that if they leave, someone's going to take their job, you know, right? So you're hitting on a lot of the anxieties, and that's kind of what we saw in the report, is that this our connectivity is unlike it's ever been before. And one of the things we looked at was, is the economy driving this or is it something else? And it, what we found out is it's not really the economy. We looked at unemployment, consumer confidence. None you of you them lined up If I go back to the 1950s, usage. people didn't take their vacation. They, I mean, they took actually a lot more time. We have a long-term average of taking about 20 points. Well, now you know how days. dysfunctional my family yeah. was. Okay. <laughs> Maybe yeah. your family did. Yeah, no. no, we were really great about it. And then in 2000, our vacation usage just starts tanking. And it's been a downward trend ever since. So it really doesn't line up to the economy. We almost have a perfect X with connectivity, though. When you look at internet adoption rates since 2000 and our vacation usage, it creates an almost perfect X. Internet adoption goes up, tech vacation usage goes down. Okay, now i got to ask you this question. I'm one of those guys who has to have his connectivity, right? Mm -hmm. The minute I check into a hotel room, I'm crawling around looking for the outlet, you know, right? right. So people take their work with them when they travel. I think work is not the enemy. Technology is not the enemy. But I think what we learned in our latest report, State of American Vacation, is that you have to be intentional about your time. You're not going to find time to do things. You have to make time. And I think if anything else that you take away from this report, plan your time off. You have to plan it. And if you don't plan it, it kind of becomes the innocent bystander of our work culture. And it goes away. And it, it often goes away. All right, Katie, how much vacation time did you have last year? How I've, much were you allowed? I was allowed about three. Three and a half weeks, I think. And did you take all three and a half? I sure did. And <laughs> you, I, I knew I was going to get that answer. I can't, I, I can't have this job and not take my vacation. <laughs> yeah, like the person who's in charge of project time off just took time off. Yes, exactly. And my team did too. They took all of their days, which but, is very important. But weren't you incentivized to do that? We were, yes. So U.S. Travel is incredibly generous and does actually incent us to take our time off. But one of the things that we found an issue with is a few years ago, we looked at who was using their time. And at the U.S. Travel Association, the people who want you to travel more than anyone, right? 19% of the staff was using all their vacation time. Only 19%. 19%. Well below the national average. 45%, in, according to our latest report, use all their time now. So I think one of the things we said is, this is no good. We need to make sure that people are getting re recharged, rested, and coming back so they can be more productive. All right, so this is not really an initiative that you're talking to employers about directly. You start with the employees. I think we actually, we work with both. So we've done a little bit on each side of things because we've got so many tools for HR leaders. This is a major thing for talent attraction and retention, creativity. So many companies have entrepreneur and re residence programs and nap pods and pogo sticks and God knows what else. Vacation is already part of your benefits. If somebody told me that my vacation was going to include pogo sticks, I'd quit. It's, no, no, the, not the vacation. This is the stuff they do in the office to encourage creativity. Oh, fine. Tell your employees no, to take No, pogo stick in the office encourages orthopedic surgery. That's, yes. I would certainly end up in the okay, hospital. Okay, I just want to so. mention that. Okay. <laughs> it's not good for the health plan. All right. Um, but vacation is one of those things where you can really stimulate creativity and get a lot out of the employee. You work them really hard, give them the break they need. Here's what I do, but you can't steal this. Okay. I'm writing a book right now called Where I Sleep the Best, and it's, it's interviewing 200 global leaders from all walks of life to tell me exactly where they sleep the best. Mm -hmm. Because once you determine that, this gets back to vacation, 
Once you determine where you sleep the best, you know what else you discover? Where you sleep the best is where you think the best. It's where you create the best. It's where you listen the best. It's where you love the best. All of those component parts go into where you sleep the best. And a lot of people sleep the best when they're taking time off. That's right. You need, you need that break. You need to, need to refresh. So how do you incentivize the companies? So when you look at this, there's those days that are forfeited, the third of days that are just going away. The other two-thirds can be rolled over, can be banked. So that kind of goes to a bottom line for the company, right? And that's something, if nothing else, if you don't care as much about the productivity arguments and all of that, look at your bottom line numbers. You don't want to be bearing that on your books. So if you really do want to encourage your employees to take that time. And you know, now I think we're getting into the point where the economy is recovering and we've got some talent wars. This is a great way. For recruiting. To, yeah, absolutely. Emphasize the great parts of your benefits package. Otherwise, Katie, you become a contingent liability on the books. Exactly. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. You know, if you take a look, and this is a story we've been talking about for years, actually. How about 12 years? About how, in the wake of 9-11, America was considered closed, unwelcoming, inhospitable. Shall I continue? Visa wait times were up to 180 days. And then something changed. Somebody got smart. Congress actually agreed on something, which, amazingly enough, actually happened. And they created an agency to, for the first time in the history of the United States, literally promote America to the world. It's somewhat ridiculous to think that we're the only country that still doesn't have a cabinet-level you know, secretary of travel or tourism. Every other country does. So this agency, Brand USA, was established, again, by an act of Congress to do just that. And guess what happened? America started getting on the radar, not just as a destination. It's always been on the radar as a destination. But it started getting on the radar as actually a place you wanted to go and could go. And a very good example of that it was not just like the, the big international gateway cities of San Francisco, L.A., Dallas, Miami, New York, but states like Oregon. And joining me now, the head of all tourism, Oregon, Scott Davidson. How are you? I'm doing great, Peter. How are you? You heard my intro. I mean, you've seen the numbers change dramatically. Yeah, we have seen phenomenal numbers. Uh, as you said, Oregon had been on the international radar screen, but not really to the level until Brand USA was put in place. I mean, we really saw our numbers take off in 2010 when, when Brand USA was first created and when their marketing programs were put in place. And, and in 2015, we saw our international numbers uh, increase a, a, again. We were looking at uh, between 14 and 15. We saw 14, 15% growth but that's in huge. total international visitation. Well, it's huge. We were seeing, we talk about mature and emerging markets together, right? To see an emerging market grow uh, like China has for us, uh, 20, 30 plus percent, you would, you would hope and expect. But to see a mature market for Oregon like Japan 
grow year over year, two years in a row by nearly 10 percent is unprecedented. And the thing is, it's not just the cities like Portland. Portland may be your gateway city, but then they're seeing the rest of the state. Portland is a dynamic gateway city for the state of Oregon, but they are truly getting out around the state. And that's that's what we're hearing from our partners from, from the Oregon coast to the Wallowa Mountains in eastern Oregon to Crater Lake down in, the, in southern Oregon. They're getting out and seeing the state. And these are visitors from every market, Europe, Asia, South America alike. Of course, what that means is your brochures are now not just in English. We can no longer just do websites and any other collateral in in English only. We have multiple language websites, multiple language collateral materials. That's what's demanded. That's what we need to do to stay in front of our consumers and stay relevant. Before this, I mean, I think it's safe to say you individually as a state did not have the budget to do this kind of thing on your own? You know, back in, uh, back in 2003, Oregon's budget was 47th in the country out of 50 states, and the legislature then in Oregon saw fit uh, with the urging of the industry to implement uh, a dedicated stable funding source through a statewide lodging tax. <clears throat> and that took our budget to be probably be in the mid-20s, but when we were able to take those dollars and leverage the work of Brand USA. Then the magic really started to happen, and we have been able to take consumer advertising, which we have never done internationally. We can now do consumer advertising in, in certain key markets because we can leverage the presence and prominence of Brand USA. Right. Now, the other thing that I noticed, and I was just up in Oregon recently, I get off the plane, and you guys are welcoming me. You know, that's been very intentional. It's been intentional for Brand USA as they take uh, a tremendous step forward in, in terms of marketing the welcome. And we in Portland and in Oregon, and especially at the Portland International Airport, have really taken that to heart. And of their own volition, the, the Port of Portland invested millions of dollars in totally redoing their international arrivals lobby, for example, with depictions, our, uh, you know, graphic depictions of the entire state of Oregon. So you, when you enter the airport, you're also being welcomed to Oregon as well as to Portland, uh, to make sure that the signage is in various languages, to make sure that we have video monitors there that are welcoming you to the state and depicting all that Oregon has to offer. And I hope you're working with Customs and Border Protection to make that welcome happen, too. You know, it's wonderful to know that our staff with CBP and TSA are regularly recognized as some of the finest in the country by those agencies. They're winning customer service awards. They're winning efficiency awards. And it's, it's uh, you know, we're, we're truly blessed. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now at radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Huh? I've been coming to New Orleans since the 70s, and of course, it's impossible to find a bad restaurant here. The hotel development is huge, and in many cases, the city doesn't look like it's changed at all since Katrina. Joining me now is somebody who's seen a lot of the change, who covers it for the Times-Picayune, Robert McClendon. How are you, sir? Great. Nice to be here. Yeah. So you heard my intro. I mean, I think there are more restaurants now in New Orleans than there have ever been. That's true. But what about hotel rooms? Because what's interesting to me is if you go around the country, if you're a one-star hotel, you can define your brand. Everybody knows what you're going to get. If you're a five-star hotel, you can define your brand. Those mid-level hotels have a problem. Then here comes Airbnb, and there's no real emotional connection with the two- and three-star hotels, and people start moving. But Airbnb has a problem here, don't they? Yeah, it's completely illegal. Wow. I mean, I don't know many cities that have been able to pull that off. Well, they haven't pulled it off is the thing. It's completely illegal, and yet there are 5,000-plus of them in the city of New Orleans. So 
So it's, it's, a, a, it's so a ban on paper. It's not a ban <laughs> in fact. New Orleans has a problem enforcing a lot of laws, and this is just one where they've really stopped even trying. And this law was passed because, what, they weren't paying taxes? Uh, no, this is actually a law that has been on the books forever. It's been a tourist town since the antebellum days, so there's always been a lot of sort of informal hospitality lodging establishments in the city but the the law on the books is really geared towards regulating like flop houses, right? So it's like so it goes back to the 1800s. I mean, yeah, this is this is like classic, you know, roughneck boarding houses is what this law was meant to regulate. But the way that it was defined was that it's illegal to rent to anybody for less than a month, except in a very few specific areas of the city, and they're mostly in industrial type environments like there there's almost no there's no residential most of the commercial areas are off limits as well so it's really illegal for all intents and purposes um but because there's no enforcement there's just thousands of them they're everywhere so it's basically like the 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 claude rains character in casablanca shocked to finding out the gambling's going on and collecting his winnings from the night before absolutely but isn't that part of the whole louisiana culture so like yeah but you know yeah it's funny you um it's sort of like the Wild West, this industry, and there's definitely some, you know, New Orleans characters in the mix who are just speculating. Uh, I went to a couple of meetings of the the sort of lobby group for the owners of these um, uh, short-term rentals, as we call right. them. And, you know, there are people who are openly flouting it, like, I own four, five, six of them. I'm making $100,000 a month or whatever. I mean, crazy numbers they're throwing out and just sort of like unabashedly flouting the law but i would assume there's got to be a point of diminishing returns for somebody where the hotel association is going to say okay they're cutting into our bottom line we're going to insist on you enforcing the law you know for a long time i think the hotel industry thought that this was a niche product um that that served a different market or that would only nibble around the mart their margins but airbnb put out some numbers um, for the most recent Jazz Fest, they had 20,000 uh, 20, bookings in the city of New Orleans for Jazz Fest. And how many available rooms? Uh, well, the, the capacity was roughly what it was last year, according yeah. to um, uh, one hotel manager that I talked to. But um, when I told him the numbers, he really, like, there was an audible gasp. And he was like, I've got to tell my, you know, my owners about this. And he was just astounded that it had really reach that level so now what do you what's the prognosis you know that's a great question the city council right now is trying to craft some sort of a regulation to address it to legalize it and formalize it in some way um but it's hugely controversial uh especially the short-term rentals that are not owner occupied where it's strictly an investment property that's rented out short term that's the the most hot button issue those are the speculators Right. And the thing is, I would assume that the rest of the country is watching New Orleans to see what you're going to do because we already have a law in the books. Well, I think this might be a, a situation where all of us are standing in a circle looking at the next guy because the conversation here is, well, we got to look and see what San Francisco is doing or New York is doing. Um, well, to try for and example, if you it. take a look at some markets, they've already gone... Airbnb has done a proactive thing and say, okay, we're going to collect taxes and we're going to pay the taxes. Okay, does anybody have a problem after that? And nobody shuts up. Well, there's, I mean, in the, in the cities where there's like the most controversial, so your San Francisco's, your Portland's, your Austin's, um, they're not 
you know, content to say you're collecting taxes. They want to be able to know where these things are and to be able to regulate Li- how, how them, right how, regulate how many there are and where they're going. And that's a bridge that Airbnb and the HomeAway sort of family of brands, which is now owned by Expedia, that's sort of a bridge they've not yet willing been willing to cross. Although I think we're going to see more of that. Um, I don't know if you heard that. Uh, San Francisco, the San Francisco City Council, just within the last week, I think, approved an ordinance that would fine the listing companies a thousand dollars a day for every illegal unit that they list. Well, that's a wake up call. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? Just before the break, we were talking about what the San Francisco City Council did. Right. So they just passed an ordinance that will fine listing companies $1,000 a day for every day that they list a unit that's not licensed by the city. But if you're having 3,000 listings in Airbnb in San Francisco, that's $3 million a day. Right. So they're the potential, it's punitive, you know, they're clearly trying to send a message. But you know, it's interesting. I I remember when the Department of Transportation issued a rule that if you were stuck on the tarmac more than three hours and the airline didn't get you back to the gate, they were liable to fines of up to $27,500 per passenger. Wow. so on a, on a fully loaded 737, you're at a million eight right there. You know how many delays there have been over three hours since that thing was passed? None. <laughs> right? And the airlines all fought it, saying, you're killing us. No, they just preemptively started canceling planes so that people weren't living on planes in the middle of a runway. You know? I'm for so, that. It gets hot on those planes. It does. Now, have you ever stayed in an Airbnb here in New Orleans? No. But you know of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are some neighborhoods, Faubourg, Marigny, and Bywater in particular are very popular tourist destinations now and there are blocks where there are more short-term rentals than there are actual long-term homeowners or tenants but i think in one of your reports it's 70 percent of the airbnb rentals in new orleans are houses in which the owners don't even live there that was a statistic that comes from an analysis of uh, an unauthorized data scrape of airbnb's website Airbnb says that that's not accurate that actually most are home sharers in new orleans but i don't think anybody really believes that until nobody's Airbnb's, done the census i mean they don't know right until airbnb is willing to give transparent records i don't think anybody will ever believe anything that they say and is giving transparent records in their best interest probably not no they want i mean nobody their their client is not the tourist their client is not the city of new orleans their client is the people who own these properties, right. and so they want to protect their identity and their privacy. I mean, in some cities, there are people who, you know, you, you mentioned them as speculators, will go out and buy five or six condominium units and just start renting them out. They have no intention of living there. Right. Um, I, I think you're seeing more and more of that here. Um, and it's really, I think there's a little bit more leverage in a, in a like a, a condo building because there's covenants that you have to abide by. Um, but that's a real small minority of the housing stock in New Orleans. And frankly, it's not what people come to New Orleans to do. They don't come to stay in a condo in the CBD that looks like they could be anywhere on earth. They want to be, they in want the what, flavor. They want the flavor of right, the city. You know, they want to, they want to be in the, um, Anne Rice novel neighborhood. 
Right. They want to be across from Commander's Palace. Right. <laughs> Next to the cemetery. Right, right, right. But, but here's the thing. I mean, when you take a look at where Airbnb is, you would think that that's got to have an effect on hotel rates. You know, that the, the manager that I talked to said that he hasn't seen that happen yet. It was a high-end hotel, and he said that that— well, See, the high-end hotels are, not, are probably not going to have a problem. And the, and the one-stars, you, know, uh, you know, the Hampton Inns and, mm-hmm. and those, right? But the two and threes, you know, the, the mid-level hotels— Right. Which don't really have an emotional connection with most of their guests, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. They've got to suffer when you've got that kind of of, sure. of inventory out there. And even the manager that I talked to recently said that you know it's an all an interconnected market. So even if it's only competing and really hurting the um, middle and low end folks, eventually that's going to suck the ability of the high end hotels. Uh, to to charge their maximum possible rates as well. So your prognosis? Ah, <laughs> uh, I think my guess is that the city of New Orleans there's a really 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 vocal opposition to this for the the what what we call whole home rentals, um, and so I would be surprised that the mayor is for whole, whole home rentals. Uh, he hasn't said that explicitly, but his actions to date sort of indicate that that's the case. Um, and yet I just don't know if they're going to be able to convince people that they can actually enforce the rules. I don't think most people would mind if they could actually enforce uh, the density restrictions so that they're not taking over entire neighborhoods. I think people you know, might swallow that, but I don't think that anybody has enough confidence in the city's ability to actually enforce it. To so let for the moment, this is it. the wild, wild west, and it's still the wild, wild west. Right, and it's just going to keep on that way, I think. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. The numbers are pretty staggering, and we've talked about this earlier in the show, about how many people didn't visit the United States during what we would call a lost decade, immediately following 9-11 and continuing actually well beyond that decade into, let's say, 2011 as well. But then in 2010, a miracle happened. The United States Congress actually agreed on something and created something called Brand USA, an agency created to do the one thing that the U.S. government had never done before. The U.S. had never done it as a country, to market the United States to the world. I mean, it's, it's just staggering to think that every available country that you can name has a cabinet-level minister of travel and tourism except us. So the name Brand USA is really established to do just that. And remarkably, it's not just the, the old the Kevin Costner line, if you build it, they will come. It's the way you build it and the way you open the country and, the, and, and in a business that's driven by perception, how you change that perception and make people aware of what's available to them uh, in this country, so that they will come. Joining me now from Brand USA with some pretty interesting numbers. Ann Madison, how are you? I'm great. So, you heard the intro, and those numbers are pretty impressive. I mean, they really are. I mean, when you think about who wasn't coming here, when you think about who wasn't showing up, who consciously decided 
from whatever country they were coming from that they were giving up on America and going somewhere else. It's, it's a remarkable turnaround that they are now starting to come. It absolutely is because they were choosing other destinations. Now they're choosing ours and not only choosing the USA, but choosing to go well beyond the gateways. And that's really critical to fueling you know, the economy. You know, if you ask, and, and I do this every time I'm flying back to the U.S. and I happen to be standing up in the, uh, in the galley or somewhere on the plane and I'm talking to people who have not been in the United States for the first time, you know, I say, well, where are you going? Oh, San Francisco or New York, or we want to go to uh, Miami or we want to go to L.A., but there are a whole lot more places to go to. And and what you've done is you've opened up through those gateway cities and others the opportunity for them to go all across the country. Right. And we do it not only because it's a great way to market the USA, but as a public-private partnership, we are actually required by law under the Travel Promotion Act to do just that. And we have. We've reached all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the five territories. And it wasn't that foreign visitors didn't know the United States. It wasn't that they hadn't studied us. In fact, I would argue they know more about this country than most of us do. They've read about it in school. They've aspired to come. They dream about coming. Even places like Route 66, uh, a route that we no longer really actively drive, they want to drive it. And you still can. You absolutely can, and you can see so much of the country. People come here to make that amazing road trip. They do know more about the United States than many Americans do. That is a fact. But now they have the opportunity, at least, or the comfort level, if you will, of knowing they can. They know they can, and they know they're welcome. That's critical. Another piece that we emphasize is you can be both safe, secure, and welcoming. Yeah, because it goes back to post-9-11, even visa wait times of up to 180 days. That's six months. People just, if they were leisure travelers, they just went somewhere else. And if they were business travelers, they chose to do business elsewhere. That's right. And so what, what the amazing thing that you talked about that happened in 2010 uh, was the Travel Promotion Act. And that was when uh, President Obama signed that act into law. But there's three other key milestones that have happened. The first was in 2012, the president stood up in front of Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and said, okay, that's great. We've got this Travel Promotion Act. We finally have a public-private partnership to promote the USA internationally. But now what we need is a national travel and tourism strategy to really fortify that public-private partnership. And then he also moved on to saying, now let's make the welcoming experience better. And then the fourth thing was the reauthorization of Brand USA, Which happened actually a year early. It did. It did. And I don't think it would ever happen if we were not driving results. It was very difficult during the first years because you had we to educate had a, legislators. We absolutely did. But here's the difference. We are not allowed to lobby. We are not a lobbying organization. We're a marketing organization. So you just had to get the word out through other sources. We had to get the word out, but we also had to do something that was critical, drive results. We had to show results. And for the past three years, have closely monitored what we've done. Not only campaigns, have they been effective, but how many incremental visitors have you brought to the United States? That's what people ask us. And now we can answer that question. It's about a million a year, so three million in the past three three years. And you know, it's, read these numbers that 130 million Chinese are going to be traveling, but they're not telling you where they're traveling. We just know they are traveling. Right. But what you're seeing with your numbers based on the strategy is they're starting to come in rather large numbers to the United States. Right. Now, a great portion of them are traveling within Asia, but we are getting more and more travelers from China, but all through international countries coming to the United States. And our market share of global travel has risen as a result. And it's also, uh, you might say, encouraged or even forced destinations in this country to adapt to that foreign visitor. All the brochures now in Mandarin, all the different languages. There's some states that are marketing themselves with 16 different languages. Yeah, there are a number of programs out there that destinations have done and Brand USA is developing because not 
every destination can build these programs. They're quite expensive. So one of the things that we do is create programs like a China Ready program to help people understand how do you welcome, how do you market to, but also how do you welcome when they arrive. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Diva Darce. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. And to ask Jeff some questions, because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.